Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about Divine Mercy Sunday and answers listener-submitted questions on praying to Mary, ways for our kids to learn about St. Joseph, and more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop, and happy Easter, Bishop. Thank you, Kyle. Happy Easter to you. And it's still Easter. We're in the octave. That's right. So eight days of Easter. That's right. Yep. And every day, each of these eight days is a solemnity, highest rank in the church's calendar. So it's great to be Catholic. We don't just celebrate Easter in one day, but eight days, same with Christmas. Uh huh. So we're supposed to eat lots of candy. Is that a mandate? That's right. Eat a lot of chocolate. Your, let your kids eat chocolate every morning for breakfast during these eight days, Kyle. Just a bowl of chocolate. <laughs> bowl, of, bowl of jelly beans for breakfast. Yeah, that'll go over well. And then I, go to the dentist the week. Take them to the dentist the following that's week. That's right. Hey, um, what day does an Easter egg hate the most? I don't know. Friday. <laughs> Uh, oh that's great that was that was the best of all of the horrible easter jokes that i found (laughs) (laughs) did you tell that to your kids uh no i I will do that as soon as we're done recording here yeah be sure to do that yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right do you have an opening prayer for us today bishop well i think during this easter season the regina chaley is is a beautiful easter prayer to our Blessed Mother, so we can do that today. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. The Son whom you merited to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Pray for us to God. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So that's our song during Easter. Alleluia. You just said it how many times? Six times in the Regina Chaley. Yeah, it felt good. Yep, because we didn't sing it all through Lent. Yeah, I've heard of people burying an Alleluia for Lent, and then they dig it up for Easter. Are you familiar with this practice? I have never heard that. I think that must be a a custom in Decatur. I haven't done it, but I've heard about it. I, I think it's a fun idea. Yeah. Especially with kids. I, yeah. Know. That's a good idea. Well, this upcoming Sunday is Divine Mercy Sunday. It's always the second Sunday of Easter, concludes the Easter octave. And we talked about this back in 2018, but thought, you know, I I forget what happened two years ago. <laughs> I don't know about yeah, other listeners. Yeah. thought maybe we could just do a, a refresher on the Divine Mercy yeah, you know, it was it was Pope St. John Paul II who decreed that the second Sunday of Easter would be known as Divine Mercy Sunday. And remember, he did that in the year 2000. So this was um, after he canonized St. Faustina. He declared the second Sunday of Easter as Divine Mercy Sunday. And Pope John Paul and St. Faustina were both Polish. That's right. Of course, John Paul was, you know, had been Archbishop of Krakow, and St. Faustina was in a convent in Krakow. When I led our youth to World Youth Day in Krakow, we we did together visited the uh, the convent where St. Faustina lived and where she received 
the revelations of divine mercy. And then there's a big shrine there now. And so we had mass and I was really happy to, uh, to be there. And now they've built very close by a shrine to St. John Paul II, which is beautiful also. It's interesting that uh, St. John Paul died on the vigil of divine mercy. And then he was beatified by Pope Benedict on Divine Mercy Sunday. And then later, he was canonized by Pope Francis on Divine Mercy Sunday. Hmm. So there's this this connection uh, that's between St. John Paul II and this humble Polish nun who received these private revelations concerning Divine Mercy. And, you know, she wrote a diary, and, and um, that's how we know about her experiences in prayer and the the revelation she received and it was interesting it was this was it back in 19 in the 1930s and what was happening at that time in the world was these evils were rising nazism started and communism you know these ideologies were taking taking shape and it was at that time that she uh, inspired by god was the herald of of the message that would that would defeat ultimately and offset the evil of these ideologies, the fact that God is mercy. So ever since he be, when he after he became pope, John Paul said he felt impelled to pass on this message of divine mercy, so that it wouldn't just be something that people in Krakow or Poland knew about, but he, he wanted it to be for the whole universal church. And it was in those uh, private revelations, we read in St. Faustina's diary, there were 14 times where Jesus requested a feast of mercy, (laughs) Divine Mercy Sunday. And one of the uh, things in the diary, it says, my daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the feast of mercy be a refuge and shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive holy communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. Let no soul fear to draw near to me. It is my desire that it be solemnly celebrated on the first Sunday after Easter. Mankind will not have peace until it turns to the fount of my mercy. I think the knowledge of Catholics about Divine Mercy Sunday has obviously increased a lot in the past 20 years. And you know, sometimes we say, oh, how is, how is it that we have this liturgical feast based on private revelation? When you think about it, it's not primarily about St. Faustina. And it's really not totally new because the second Sunday of Easter always was, you know, a solemnity. It's the end of the octave of Easter. And mercy is, is part of what... Uh, the Easter octave is all about the triumph of mercy, the triumph of God's mercy. We give thanks during the Easter octave for the goodness that God has shown to us 
through his mercy. And so this being a week after Easter, it seems like maybe it would be more of a Good Friday thing. Why, why do you think the, it being post-resurrection being something to reflect on? It's interesting that the novena begins on Good Friday, you know, mm. the nine days. So there is a connection, obviously, because where do we see God's mercy revealed in the most powerful way? and efficaciously is is his is Jesus's death on the cross. At the same time though, we have to keep in mind that this loving mercy is victorious. If there was no resurrection, what happened on Good Friday would have very little meaning for us, you know, it would just be this holy man died, but no, he rose from the dead, which confirmed his teachings uh, and his divinity. And so therefore his mercy endures forever. So you can't really separate Good Friday and Easter Sunday in that way. And so it makes sense, I think, as, as we continue then to celebrate the resurrection for eight days, that the final day is a celebration of the victory of divine mercy, that sin is defeated and death is overcome. Mm -hmm. Another question about the divine mercy, the image that people might have seen is Jesus with his hands and there's a beams coming from his heart and it says, Jesus, I trust in you. It doesn't say divine mercy. Can you maybe kind of make the connection between Jesus' divine mercy and this idea of trusting in Jesus? Yeah. Exactly, because to trust in Jesus is to trust in his love and mercy. There is a, a response uh, that we're invited to give. I mean, it's not just God or Jesus bestowing their mercy. We have to receive it. We can say no to it, really. And how do we receive it? We receive it with faith, with trust. We talked in the last episode about um, Judas. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that his failure? Not just his betraying Jesus. What was worse was he didn't accept the divine mercy. He didn't trust. And I love that. You mentioned the image. I, uh, besides the words, this image is how Jesus, how, how Faustina described Jesus's appearance to her in a vision. His right hand is raised up in a blessing, and his left hand is touching his garment above his heart. And you see the rays that emanate from the sacred heart, uh, red and white rays. Clearly, they symbolize the blood in the water. You know, when Jesus's heart was pierced on the cross, blood and water flowed out. So these rays being red and white in the image of divine mercy symbolize the blood and the water that was poured out for our salvation, for our sanctification. In his um, revelations to St. Faustina, our Lord asked that his image be painted, that what she saw be painted and venerated throughout the world. And that's what's happened. I mean, it began there in Krakow and in Vilnius, Lithuania, 
the original paintings of Divine Mercy, but now there are hundreds of thousands of images of Divine Mercy in churches and homes all over the place with that with those words, Jesus, I trust in you. And it was the Lord himself who requested that those words be inscribed under his image. He asked that the image be painted, and and he says that by means of this image, he'll grant many graces to souls. And I think that's that's very beautiful. Yeah. The diocese on the diocesan website, dioceseswsb.org, slash divine-mercy-sunday, there's information about a plenary indulgence, and yes. it's really a great website. And there's a PDF flyer, there's a Spanish version. It talks about what is a plen- plenary indulgence, easy for me to say, uh, <laughs> then how do I obtain that? And thought maybe you could just share a little bit about plenary indulgences in general, and then what what we could do or should do for this this upcoming Divine Mercy Sunday. Well, first, Kyle, I'm glad you mentioned the Dasan website because they really did a great job, our communications secretariat. So I hope a lot of people will check it out. We're able to obtain a plenary indulgence on Divine Mercy Sunday. And basically, well, explaining a plenary indulgence, you know, we receive forgiveness for our sins in the sacrament of penance, okay? The guilt of our sin is removed. But we do know that what remains are the temporal punishments due to sin, so those effects of sin. And a plenary indulgence basically is um, remits the temporal punishment due to sin. In order to obtain a plenary indulgence, it always requires three things. And there's other means to getting a plenary indulgence besides Divine Mercy Sunday. There's a lot. You can look at the Handbook of Indulgences or the Manual of Indulgences uh, and see the different prayers, et cetera, that can be done to obtain a plenary indulgence. But the three requirements are sacramental confession. So you, if you go to confession on Divine Mercy Sunday, but you can actually, it doesn't have to be exactly on that day. It could be a few days before or after. But but we always, that's always part of, of gaining a plenary indulgence is going to confession. The second is receiving Holy Communion. So, so you go to confession on Divine Mercy. By the way, a lot of priests, a lot of parishes, the priests do make time for confessions on Divine Mercy Sunday. Mm. The other thing is, you know, receiving Holy Communion on that day. And third, we always have uh, for plenary indulgence, prayer for the intentions of of our Holy Father for prayers for the Pope. And usually what I'll do is I'll say in our Father, Hail Mary and glory be for the Pope. Mm-hmm. Now, on Divine Mercy Sunday, this should be done in a church or, or a chapel. But one really important thing, you don't get a plenary indulgence, which is a full remission of the temporal punishment due to sin, unless you're completely detached from affection for sin. In other words, even if you're attached to a venial sin, uh, you're not going to get a plenary indulgence. You have to be completely detached. That's really important to understand. And of course, you take part in the prayers and the devotions of Divine Mercy Sunday. You could say the Divine Mercy Chaplet. You can venerate an image of the Divine Mercy. You can go to church and, and, and spend some time in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. 
in the tabernacle or in some places they have exposition of the Blessed Sacrament on Divine Mercy Sunday. By the way, a plenary indulgence, uh, it doesn't have to be for yourself. You can apply it to the souls in purgatory. Mm. So if you have a deceased loved one, you can offer or, or obtain the plenary indulgence for them. Now, if you do some of this, but not all of it, you could be getting a, a partial indulgence, okay? Merciful Jesus, I trust in you. Just to say that devoutly. Um, yeah, so I think that hopefully that, that explains it, yeah. You talked about being detached from sin completely. Is that right. accomplished through confession or is that something beyond confession? It's beyond confession because you can, obviously confession is necessary for the plenary indulgence, but in order to obtain it, you also have to be detached from sin. In other words, if you have been forgiven your sins, but you're still attached even to a venial sin, you're attached to, let's say some, or anger, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that you still have this attitude or, or of anger within you, then you're not going to get the plenary indulgence. Some of this is a little mysterious, to be honest, Kyle. You know, sometimes people, and myself included, might wonder, well, I don't know if I'm fully detached from sin. Uh -huh. You know, and I just, to be honest, I just leave that in God's hands. You know, if, if I'm not, well, then I receive a partial indulgence. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes it's hard to really know be interesting to get a, a, a some theologian who's expert in this area on the show, but that's something that I always kind of um, wonder about. Yeah, I think anytime we talk about indulgences that might scare people a little bit, that we're earning our salvation, and especially non-Catholic Christians might have problems with that. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe explain how that this this isn't something to to worry about or be scared of? Yeah, I think it would take more time than one episode. Okay. To get <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a whole episode. I, I don't know if we've talked about it before, but uh, if we've given a lot of time to it, but um, but really, I think we have to keep the emphasis is it's not really what we're doing; it's God's clemency we're talking about, mm -hmm. and it's it's the treasure of the church that we're talking about here, and that's applied to us. So an indulgence is something that we receive as a gift, but to dispose ourselves to receive that gift, we do these actions. We go to confession, we do the prayers, we receive Holy Communion. So there is a danger, as you mentioned, of thinking that we earn it. Mm -hmm. You know, to be honest, before God, what can we earn? I mean. It's all a fruit of his grace. Even the good we do, we wouldn't be able to do without his grace. Yeah. And one other thing that's on this website, which again is at dioceseffwsb.org slash divine-mercy-sunday, is a version of the Divine Mercy Chaplet prayed by yourself, Bishop, so people can pray that along with you. Can you talk a little bit about that chaplet people pray that on a rosary but you yeah. pray different prayers yeah and the chaplet of divine mercy has has become very popular it's customary i mean you could do it any time of the day but kind of the three o'clock hour 
the hour of divine mercy, the hour when Jesus passed from from this life to the Father, is an especially appropriate time to pray the chaplet of divine mercy. You know, it's this constant asking God to have mercy on us and all the whole world. I think it's very uh, beautiful. I think it's it's a devotion that a lot of people have grown to like and even to love to pray it. And I, I think it's really good because it highlights for us this attribute of God that we should never minimize, that he is the father of mercies. So I, I think it's good. It doesn't take very long, five minutes, six minutes. You can pray it in the car with your rosary. Even children, you know, I know children, to teach the ch- your, your kids to pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. I also find that it's something I enjoy doing when I make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. I, that's another opportune time. Or before an image of Divine Mercy. I especially find that helpful to focus while praying the chaplet. All right. And again, there is instructions on how to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. There's a little video that you can pray along with Bishop. And there's a homily. There's more resources. And if nothing else, I encourage people to go check out this website because there's an image on here, a picture of some students at Marion High School painting an eight-foot oil painting of the Divine Mercy that was done in 2019, which is awesome. I, if you would have just shown me that picture, I would have just assumed that's something that they they bought yeah. and hung up there. I, that students yeah. did that is so cool. They have a great art department at Marion High School. Um, I think it's cool too. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, one thing I I really, as you were talking about the chaplet, I forgot to mention. In her diary, you know, St. Faustina writes of Jesus telling her to encourage people to say the chaplet. And then this really struck me. He said to St. Faustina, whoever will recite it will receive great mercy at the hour of death. Even if there were a sinner most hardened, if he were to recite this chaplet only once, he would receive grace from my infinite mercy. I desire that the whole world know my infinite mercy. So to all those that maybe feel a little bit uh, hardened and and doubtful of of this, you know, and maybe listeners who've who've been away from the practice of the faith, mm-hmm. you know, maybe one way to kind of start over or, or come back is to pray the chaplet of divine mercy. And, and let the Lord pour out upon you this, this gift. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Again, you can find more information about that at dioceseffwsb.org slash divine-mercy-sunday. And if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And we have some questions about saints being mediators, and does this contradict the Bible, why priests wear a Roman collar, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. 
In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here asking questions that you've submitted for a bishop to respond to. Our first listener submitted question regards what seems to be a contradiction between church teaching and the Bible. It says, in 1 Timothy, it says, Jesus is our sole mediator, yet we pray to Mary and the saints. Is that going against the Bible? No. I mean, what 1 Timothy says is, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's other places in the scriptures, like the letter to the Hebrews, which speak of Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant. So how to answer that question? I mean, the Catholic Church teaches that Jesus is the one mediator. He's the mediator of the new covenant. We don't deny that when we invoke the saints. The thing is, to say that Jesus is the one mediator doesn't mean that we should understand that in in an absolute sense, excluding any other possible, what we would call secondary or subordinate mediation. Hmm. Now, when we invoke the saints, we don't go to God apart from the mediation of Christ, okay? In other words, we don't believe in what can be called substitutional mediation. No one can substitute for the mediation of Jesus. Hmm. Mary can't or any of the saints can't. So we're not talking about substituting for Jesus. No, we don't teach substitutional mediation. But we do believe in what we can call subordinate mediation, where we have the prayers of the saints, or we have the prayers of one another. I mean, those who sometimes will will say, oh, Catholics, you, you pray to Mary and the saints, that's not allowed, Jesus is, is the only mediator. I would say, well, you're not, if, if that's what you believe, then you shouldn't be asking anyone to pray for you. And you shouldn't be asking, or you shouldn't be praying for anyone else if it's only Jesus, mm-hmm. you know? And and then they're kind of perplexed by that. And I say, you ask me to pray for you. I'm happy to do that. This is a subordinate mediation. My prayers for you are through Jesus, ultimately. Same thing when the saints pray for us. It's ultimately through Jesus. Uh, so we don't understand this sense of Jesus as one mediator one mediator in an absolute sense. I mean, I would go against Scripture because Scripture, even St. Paul, you know, there, there's mediation all through the Scriptures. There's mediation when we preach the gospel. We're hmm. mediating. So I think, you know, it's important to, to look at that and um, to understand it correctly, this subordinate mediation 
which really serves Christ's supreme mediation. So is that helpful, Kyle? Does that... Yeah, I think so. And also, there are other times in the Bible where it encourages us to pray for one another. Right. Right. I mean, there are so many examples. I mean, remember Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. Mm -hmm. Pray for those who persecute you. He says things like, some demons can only be driven out by prayer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about how the apostles prayed for Stephen. And then Stephen prayed at his martyrdom, asking the Lord to forgive his killers. And he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. So Stephen was interceding. The Christian community prayed for Peter after he was arrested. So often, St. Paul says that he prays for his communities. So he's he's mediating. Um, okay. All right. Someone asked, why do priests wear a Roman collar, and why is it called a Roman collar? Okay, I don't know the whole history, but it's relatively recent. It's basically like a uniform. It, it kind of shows that this person's a priest. That's the most obvious explanation. But why this particular piece of clothing? Well, in the early centuries, really, I don't think that priests had any kind of distinctive vesture. But we do know that by the 12th and 13th centuries, they they wore the cassock, this, this uh, black cassock. <laughs> and it was around that time, or a few centuries later, that the white collar came into existence. Because the current fashion by the 17th, 18th century was to wear a linen collar above the top of a person's clothing. <laughs> so therefore, there were these different kinds of linen collars. And as the years progressed, the Roman collar developed, this this white collar. Uh, And actually, I think it began more with Protestants. I think in Scotland, I think they were Reformed ministers. Really? That was around the 19th century. And then Catholic priests started wearing it too. But if you look at some of the old portraits of priests, for example, even you know, 18th century, you won't see the Roman collar. You'll, you might see a collar, but not what we would today call the Roman collar. But basically what I think is the most important, it's, it's identifying us. It's a distinctive sign. This man is a priest. And it, it's kind of a visible sign too, I think, that, you know, and that's why we're required, you know, we're supposed to wear clerical garb so that people can recognize us and they may need to talk to a priest or they may want to go to confession or whatever, or they might need some counseling Mm -hmm. from a priest. Uh, So I think that's why wearing the collar is important. And so why a Roman collar, not a Catholic collar? Why, Why do we call it a Roman collar? I don't know, because I think it began in... Scotland, so I don't know why they would call it the Roman collar. I guess because it's it's Rome, worn by Roman Catholic priests. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I would guess, but I, I don't know. All right. Another listener asked, can you recommend any activities for parents who would like to teach their small children about St. Joseph? I think you'd be better answering that question, Kyle. You have small children. I, I, was, I was really excited about this. Oh, great. I'm going to learn something here. Oh, you didn't? You don't... 
think anything else? Okay. <laughs> I, I probably, wow, I'd have to think about this. Um, the thing that immediately comes to mind is, is Joseph the carpenter mm-hmm. and, uh, and Joseph's op- occupation and how he taught Jesus, his child, Jesus, the skills of carpentry. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of activity that parents could do uh, to teach small children about St. Joseph by maybe some wood and putting some things together, kind of saying this is what Joseph did. That's not a great activity idea but maybe that's the only thing that comes to mind right now how i mean what other kinds of activities i think i would have a picture of saint joseph mm-hmm. you know or a statue of saint joseph i think in the home is a good thing and just talking about his to your children about his fatherly love and how he took care of jesus and protected him i think the story of the flight into egypt is one that's good to well the children are too small, I guess. You don't want to scare them with the Herod slaughtering the innocents. But as the kids get a little older, how how Joseph was the protector and how he protects us, that he's the defender, the guardian of the church, just like he was the guardian of Jesus. So we can ask him to protect us. Mm-hmm. Those are kinds of things I would, I would uh, talk to children about. Yeah. One thing our school did, which I think is neat, the Catholic school, is they celebrated some smaller masses. I don't know if it was just uh, one grade at a time or, or how they did it, but they did it at the St. Joseph altar. So at, at our church, I don't know if, oh. if many churches have this, but we have our main altar, but then there's a little Marian one on the left side, and there's a little St. Joseph altar on the right side. And uh, apparently they, they have permission to be able to celebrate masses at these side altars. And so they yeah. did it at the St. Joseph altar, kind of celebrating the year of St. Joseph and reminding the children about it. There's an image of St. Joseph there, a little statue. There's a stained glass window also right beside it. So there's some things to point out of symbolism of, you know, Joseph holding the church or holding the carpenter square and and things like that. So, And if you're on the South Bend side of the diocese or if, or if you're visiting South Bend sometime, my favorite, uh, Chapel of St. Joseph is in St. Joseph High School. And take your children in there because it has six beautiful stained glass windows from the life of St. Joseph, Hmm. as well as two paintings, one of the Nativity, but one of Joseph, the Annunciation to Joseph by the angel while Joseph was laying asleep and he, the, the angel spoke to him in a dream. That chapel is like a catechesis on St. Joseph, so I, I recommend uh, you know visiting there. Yeah, it might be a good pilgrimage for us as a family. Go up there and mm-hmm. check that out. Make sure it's going to be open before you go up. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned images. I did an episode of Catholic Art History with Charles and Amanda Shepard, and they were talking about this painting. It's called Christ in the House of His Parents. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. It's, the artist is John Everett... Milais. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And it's this really cool, almost a Norman Rockwell type of a scene of Joseph at the workbench and Jesus has a little uh, a little wound and Mary's taking care of him. John the Baptist is carrying some water. There's so much symbolism in it. It's really cool. But I would say Jesus is probably like, I don't know, six, seven years old in the painting. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. 
there's just a, it's a lot of it's a workshop but there's so much symbolism there's sheep in the background like a, the doors open and stuff so and they're they're building a door. You actually probably just need to listen to the whole episode that we did with Charles and Amanda Shepard. Yeah. But if people want to check out that image, it's really cool. I have a, a print of it hanging up now. It's Christ in the house of his parents. So I would like to see that. And how do we get that podcast or that program you said? I will. It is a podcast. I can have a link for it in the show notes for this episode. Oh, that would be good. I would like to listen yeah. to that. Uh, another thing, I guess, is I, I really love how Pope Francis... Have you heard the story of his statue of Joseph? Sleeping? Oh yeah, and he puts his intentions <laughs> yes. under it. I know. I you know I don't have a statue of Saint Joseph uh, sleeping, but I have a statue of Saint Joseph prominent in my living room for this year of Saint Joseph. I had had it up in my bedroom, and I took it down to okay. my living room. And I, I'm gonna. I, I like that idea of putting intentions under it. You know, one of the things is that sometimes you know you go to bed and you have some anxieties or whatever. And uh -huh. I think this is what Pope Francis is saying. Just write it down, put it under the statue of Joseph, leave it in his hands and get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Let him pray about it for you. <laughs> yep. I like that. All right. I've always wondered about this one too. Sometimes at the end of mass, the priest tells us to bow our heads and ask for God's blessing. Sometimes he doesn't. Why? It depends on which blessing he's using. Okay. Okay. If he's just doing the simple blessing, which is, you know, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, may almighty God bless you, you don't bow your head. I okay. mean, that's just a normal, simple blessing. It's only when he's doing a sol the solemn blessing. The solemn blessing is, you know, where three times you respond, amen, where he's doing this blessing over you, but it's longer, where he'll say, for example, the solemn blessing at Easter is uh, there's... May Almighty God bless you through today's Easter solemnity and in his compassion defend you from every assault of sin. Amen. And then there's another and a third. And then he gives the actual blessing and may Almighty God bless you. So when he does that solemn, that longer blessing, that's when you're invited to bow your heads. Because you want to also, you're kind of listening and focusing on on the uh, the words of the blessing, and you humbly, you know, bowing your head is is also a sign of of humility. You're bowing your head in prayer to receive the blessing. I'll often close my eyes when, well, not when I'm giving the blessing because I have to read it, but yeah. if I'm receiving a blessing like that, I will close my eyes so I can concentrate on the words. All right, and so that would depend on the specific mass of the year, not a priest choosing which. No, it is. To it's do. the priest choosing. Okay. Yeah, the choose the priest always has option. Okay. So even that solemn blessing at the uh, uh, for Easter, that's not required. Okay. So the priest can always choose. I I often I'd say more often than not do the solemn blessings. Now sometimes in ordinary time. Not always. I'll just do maybe the simple Episcopal blessing, which we do, uh -huh. you know, at the end of our radio show. And notice there's no bowing. It's pretty simple, so uh -huh. there's no bow. So is that something you decide ahead of time or just on the fly? Somebody brings up the book and you say, launch into one over the other. I'd say more often than not, it's on the fly. Okay. Uh, maybe I should be thinking about it before Mass, but normally for me, it's on the fly. Sure. Yeah, and sometimes if the ribbon's not there, 
since I'll be all flustered trying to find it in the <laughs> missile, I'll just do the simple one. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're, you tell them to bow their heads so it gives you some time to stall. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. When you say bow your heads and there's a little silence, you can find it with the if the ribbon's not there. But actually, if you're preparing the missile, I don't usually prepare the missile. Usually the MC does. But I guess priests will sometimes, they plan ahead that they're going to do it and they put a ribbon there. Uh-huh. I don't know. All right. Someone wrote in asking, do you think we will ever have the precious blood available to the congregation again? I think so. Um, I don't know when. I think there may be more people concerned about contagion even after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that'll be interesting. It's something that the bishops haven't talked about. I think it is something we might want to talk, especially to health officials about. So I don't say this with certainty, but... I would think that it will be available uh, again. And by the way, we do receive, just so we say the precious blood, we do receive the whole Christ under the forms of bread and wine. So when we receive the consecrated host, we're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So that's why receiving from the chalice isn't necessary, but it does bring out more the sign value of the Eucharist. So how important is that? to you that the congregation be able to participate in the precious blood, knowing that by participating in the blessed sacrament of the, in the, under the appearance of bread is full and complete. You're not lacking anything. Right. Now the priest has to, has to, it's not an option to complete the sacrifice. He must drink Mm -hmm. from the chalice. Uh, So there's no option for the priest. But asking about my own personal thoughts about it, I just respect the freedom of individuals. Um, I don't have a a preference. I I just follow what the church instructs. I'm fine either way. Okay. I guess along those lines, do you think we'll ever be allowed to blow out candles on our birthday cake ever again? I think so. Have you been been fanning (laughs) your birthday cakes? I I don't think I had a birthday cake this year. But, oh. uh, or if I did, there there wouldn't have been candles there on it. Can. <laughs> That's a good question. No blowing out candles during the pandemic, huh? Yeah, we, we've done cupcake for the kid. Like he can blow out the candle on the cupcake so he doesn't spit on everybody else's cake. Yeah. <laughs> think of all the, you know what I think is remarkable, Kyle? I, you know, I usually get a few colds or flu every year. <laughs> I, I, haven't even, this, yeah. I haven't even had a cold <laughs> since the pandemic began. Yeah. It's the first time in my life that I remember going this long without even the common cold. And I know why. It's probably using the hand sanitizer and wearing a mask. Even after the pandemic, I think I'm going to I'm gonna use sanit- hand sanitizer more yeah. often because I shake so many hands and everything. No wonder I'm getting colds. Yeah. And uh, so... That's, I mean, I'm, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been extremely healthy in our, our household. Usually the kids are coming home with something every other week. So <laughs> it's, it's been kind of nice to have a break. Yeah. Uh, we've all learned from this. <laughs> right. Haven't we? Yeah. Right. Germs are real. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, if you have a question for Bishop, send a text to the Holy Cross College text line 260 436 9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? 
Well, since we've been talking about solemn blessings, do you want to do a different one? Should I do a solemn blessing? I'm ready to bow my head if you if you instruct me to do so. We've never done this, I don't think, on this so on the show. So why don't? Well, it is the octave of Easter. Why don't I do the solemn blessing from Easter? Great. Uh, okay. The Lord be with you. Wait, do, don't you have to tell me to bow my head? That comes after I say the oh, Lord that's be right. with okay. you. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Bow down for the blessing. May Almighty God bless you through today's Easter solemnity and in his compassion defend you from every assault of sin. Amen. And may he who restores you to eternal life in the resurrection of his only begotten endow you with the prize of immortality. Amen. Now that the days of the Lord's passion have drawn to a close, may you who celebrate the gladness of the Paschal Feast come with Christ's help and exulting in spirit to those feasts that are celebrated in eternal joy. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Take care, Kyle. Alleluia, alleluia. All right. Happy Easter, Bishop. (laughs) God bless. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.